0: I've asked him not to whistle that annoying tone. Yo everybody and welcome back once again to Simpsons is Greater Than, a podcast where we take a look at the cultural impact of everybody's favorite nuclear family, The Simpsons. As always, I'm your host, Warren, also known as Bart of Darkness. Some of you may know me from my Simpsons collection on Instagram and Twitter.
1: Be honest, it's great,
0: isn't it? Go ahead and say it's great if you want to. But if not, when you're done with this episode, you should really go check it out. Now, I'm really excited about this one with David Silverman because, you know, David's just so full of cool stories and knowledge from the early years. He's been animating on the show since Tracy Ullman, and he's responsible for so many great scenes and poses that we all love, and we go through so much of what led him to the show and just how influential he really was to how we see and know the Simpsons, so I really think you're going to love this one, and it's definitely one for the books. Episode 5. Enjoy it. Okay, so David Silverman, how are you doing today, my friend?
1: Just grand, simply grand. Great to see you. Great to see you again.
0: It's great to see you. Um, I guess, the, you know, the way I've been starting a lot of these is uh, because we're all, you know, confined in some way or another. Uh, what have you been up to aside from work? What, what have you been doing to stay busy?
1: Well, I've uh, played some of the horns uh, over there. Uh, I'm practicing a little bit more than I've been able to do in the past. I've actually been able to take more walks and stay in better shape. I'm in actually better shape now than I was before everything. <laughs> um, the other thing that's interesting, too, is that, you see, I've been using Zoom for about two years. Because while I was doing The Simpsons, I was also working on another project uh, with uh, three Simpson writers, Joel H. Cohen, John Frank, and Rob Zebnik. they have written this script called Extinct and it's no secret it's been announced and I've been directing it along with uh Raymond Percy as co-director formerly of the Simpsons and of Disney and uh we finished it just under the wire just the end of February before everything locked down it'll probably be released next year but that was uh that was a lot of fun uh but since that time you know I've been I've been here in Los Angeles so that's about that's about it I have not traveled anywhere Having a few drinks now.
0: <laughs> yeah, you know, I think that's that's sort of the story.
1: There's a lot of things people want to do, and, you know, you can't really. Um, oh, yes, uh, and you know what I wanted to say is that because we, I was, I was talking about uh, the film I was doing. I got off track. I've uh, oh, yeah. we been using Zoom for about two years, starting in 2018. That's when I was first introduced to Zoom. And I realized that since then, hey, I could talk to all my pals on the East Coast. Why don't I do that? So I've been trying to do more of that.
0: <laughs> um all right so i guess we'll i guess we'll get into the the meat of this thing and when did the idea of making cartoons uh become a thing that you thought you wanted to do
1: it's it seems like it's been my entire life i seem to remember as early as four that i was drawing cartoons and not i mean like all kids draw but no i was into the like drawing cartoons i want to draw cartoons i loved animation um you know I grew up watching, not only watching things like, you know, as a kid. So we're talking like, you know, we're talking like the early 60s. So I'm watching, you know, Quick Draw McGraw and Huckleberry Hound and Yogi Bear on the Hanna-Barbera side. And, of course, I'm watching all the old Warners cartoons because the Warners, you know, the Bugs Bunny uh, show was on. And that was like feeding my brain. And then I was watching a former Warners uh director by the name of Robert Clampett in his show called Beanie and Cecil. And I didn't know that they were connected, but I sensed they were connected, even as a young age, because I said there's something about the humor and some aspects and even jokes that are like, wait, that was in the Bugs Bunny thing. Uh, <laughs> and um, the other influences was, the, of course, Rocky and Bullwinkle show. Um, and uh, then I was int- interested in um, newspaper cartoons, like uh, – My favorites were Peanuts and Walt Kelly's Pogo. And then, you know, it's very interesting about Pogo because that actually had a huge impact on my drawing style, Walt Kelly. Of course, later I find out, wait a minute, Walt Kelly was a Disney animator and he was best friends with Ward Kimball. And Ward Kimball is a Disney animator that I'm also admire, and they were palsy wowsies, and it's everything like comes together in one box, <laughs> just like you find all the things that you love about Disney were probably designed by Mary Blair, and Mary Blair at the time was working for a company called Little Golden Books that you read as a kid, and your brain is being like, why is my brain is being controlled by eight people? <laughs> yeah, no, that's that's
0: really you know it's interesting to see how things are connected and. And finding out, oh, this person
1: worked on this, and I love yeah. this, and you just make those connections. Well, even the fact that, uh, you know, I mean, why didn't I put it together? But, you know, my introduction to a lot of animation, like a lot of people of my generation early on was the, the Preston Blair book on animation. Well, Preston Blair, Mary Blair. Preston Blair was Mary Blair's brother-in-law, you know. So, you know. <laughs> uh, but anyhow, um, yes, all that stuff, my dad introduced me to, um, you know, Walt Kelly, because he was a big fan, and he was uh, also a big fan of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin and Laurel and Hardy and, of course, the Marx Brothers. That came a little later when I was, you know, like sixth grade or something like that. But the point is, I had a steady diet, thanks to my parents, of comedy, animation, and I probably wanted to be an animator by the time I was five. Thanks to Walt Disney and uh, Walter Lance shows like the Woody Woodpecker show and, of course, the Wonderful World Disney showing, come on, boys and girls, here's what it looks like behind the scenes, you know. (laughs) And like, wow, okay, you can draw this for a living. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Maybe I'll
0: do that. Start it early. That's really awesome, you know i i I know from from other interviews that uh your mother was an art historian, correct, and
1: that's correct, yes, she was an art historian, so that's yes, I'm glad you brought that up because that was another component of my childhood was going to museums all the time, which i liked I liked the art in the museums I was fascinated by it, and I would see you know you know here's a Rembrandt room at the National Gallery of Art in washington d c that's where she uh worked and um I've often pointed this out. I think there was an imprinting of great sort of composed paintings that may have helped develop my just sort of a natural sense of composition, you know, when you get sort of imprinted at a young age. So yeah, and uh, additionally, my parents were big fans of music. So we went to the ballet, went to the symphony, and, uh, and it just sort of routed everything together. And that sort of led to, you know, you know these things hanging around. <laughs> uh, <laughs>
0: I imagine growing up around such a respect for art did play a, a big part in that. That was,
1: that's got well, to be huge. It certainly helped. And not only, but you see there was respect for art, but also respect for anarchy humor. So, cause, you know, <laughs> because, uh, you know, go from the Marx Brothers and you go to, you know, uh, well, we lived in Europe for a year. My dad's, uh was a professor at the University of Maryland, and he had sabbatical and took us to Europe. And I didn't realize it, but I was hearing the Goon Show when I was in, uh, in England like on reruns and then not, you know, a handful of years later, I'm watching Monty Python. So, you know, it's all like kind of coming together. So all these four, Monty Python is a big, big influence, not only on me, but everybody that has ever written for the Simpsons and probably for Saturday Night Live and for David Letterman. I mean, that, that level of humor from, Python and of course, Beyond the Fringe and Peter Crook and Dudley Moore, and all those cats had a huge influence on that whole generation of writers that were writers on The Simpsons you know in the first seasons, many of you know a number of them who had worked for like Letterman and for Carson when they, when they first got out in the, into the into the professional showbiz world. <clears throat> but that was a big impact that sort of helped shape sort of the uh, acerbic nature of humor in general. It was a big uh humor turning point uh you know the 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 beyond the Fringe crowd to begin with in the early 60s but really kind of culminated with monty python and that led to other things you know i think you know like mr show is probably influenced by that and the kids in the hall and all that sort of stuff all this sort of like kind of eccentric sketch comedy was was helped pioneered by because monty python had this whole thing about well we're just Going to end the sketch. We're not going to have a Sacco punchline. Occasionally, we would do that, but just like just kind of peter off and go to the next thing, and that was sort of part of their, you know, anarchy mantra, and uh that had a nice effect on on sort of freeing up people's notion of what could be humorous.
0: No, I I totally agree. You know, and with that same thought in mind, you know, a lot of, a lot of people say that about the Simpsons as well, and you know. You've been with the show since the beginning, yeah. essentially. What is it like you know, for you to see the show hang around for 32-plus years?
1: Well, you know, it's interesting. Even as I talk about this, I'm also keeping mindful of the influences. In addition to that, you had Matt Groening with his own take on observational humor and his own hilarious point of view and something that inspired Jim Brooks when he saw Matt's work Introduced by one of his uh, uh, associates, a writer and, and uh, art director, Polly Platt, had given him a original Matt Granning drawing. I think it's 10 Ways to Die in LA, was a uh, comic strip, which is on the wall fading because <laughs> he just used it with markers. It wasn't exactly, shall we say, archival ink that he was using back then. Uh, but uh, and led to a meeting that, you know, Jim wanted to meet Matt Granning in like late 85. And then around 86, he was starting to develop the idea of the Tracy Ullman Show, working at Fox when he had moved from Paramount to Fox. In fact, Matt told me his meeting with Jim was still at Paramount, because that's where Jim's office was still, before he made the move to Fox. And while, you know, this this is old news, but I'll go through it again, while Jim was developing the Tracy Ullman Show, he thought, I'd love to get Matt Graney to do animation interstitials between the the skits, because it's a half-hour skit comedy. Which he thought because he said, rather than put uh, Tracy Ullman in a, like, oh, she's a businesswoman, you know, like the like a Mary Tyler Moore type show, which, of course, he right. did. And, of course, another pioneering uh, uh, milestone in, in, in comedy um, with the acerbic humor. Um, he said, but she, she's so versatile, let's have a skit show. And then Matt's, you know, he said, Matt's work would be great to be in between here. And that led to. Animating on the Tracy Ullman show and, and led to a company called Klasky Chupo that got the bid. And I had worked with, uh, I did one crazy summer Savage Steve Holland film with Bill Kopp and Wes Archer and Pim Bjorglin. And the three of them were cohorts from including, well, four, including Savage from Cal Arts. I was a UCLA guy, you know, but Wes had worked at, uh, Klasky Chupo. He'd freelance for them and Wes got, us, uh, me and Bill involved the Simpsons in the beginning and that's how that happened so yeah I've seen it but what's interesting is I've seen all these sort of different kind of converging strings coming together because on the animation side it was our new generation of animators that were just like we're hot to do weird things you know Right. and that was you know I'm sort of part of the same group that you know from John Lasseter to Brad Byrd to John Musker and Ron Clements And even Eric Goldberg. Eric Goldberg, I met back in 1974. We both won the Kodak Teenage Movie Award competition. That was my first real contact with somebody who was a no question about it genius. (laughs) Right. But you see this. So it's interesting because I I think of The Simpsons is like all these threads being pulled from different directions of approaches to entertainment. Uh, in comedy and from animation, and just this whole and Matt's point of view and Jim's sensibility from the comedy writing point of view, and in, something that never happened in animation was you had a writers' room. Never happened in animation. You did have a writers' room on the Flintstones or anything like that. You know, um, and you not say say anything wrong with it, but this was just a new idea. All this, all these sensibilities were pulled in and kind of smashed into this one notion of the Simpsons. And it just kind of worked, you know. I think it just just a remarkable connection, like you know, between you know me and Wes, and the, the good fortune of pulling in Rich Moore, you know, who was pulled in as a layout artist and became director in the first season, and uh, Brad Bird's sensibility being pulled in, and um, from the animation side of a uh, point of view, and and we had our own kind of like inspirations and wanting to do things, you know, visually in animation that would wasn't their normal. We didn't do any Saturday morning. We didn't know how – we didn't know how to do exposure sheets. So We invented our own way of doing it. That became kind of an industry standard, believe it or not. I didn't know that until years later. But, yeah, and then seeing, like, the writing staff, this really remarkable writing staff in the first season. And, uh, you know, led by, um, you know, Mac Grating and Sam Simon. You know, Sam Simon's uh, contribution is, is astonishing. And Jim's contribution – uh, Jim is just, Jim's, the biggest contribution of Jim to this day is that you gotta, the family has to love each other. That's the, that's the glue. You can't, you can be as cervix as you want to, but you have to, you have to have a core to get back to. And, uh, you know, that's been our mantra all the way through. So, uh, so, uh, does that answer the question? <laughs> it does. It does. Um, well, I mean, the, the next
0: sort of the follow up to that was going to be, did you see a special quality right away? But it sounds like
1: you did. You know, I did because the first script that I got uh, to, well, of course, even when we were doing the Tracy Ullman shorts, there was something really special about this. And at the, after the first season of the Tracy Ullman shorts, at the first 20, it was me and Wes Archer. We were just trying things out, you know. And Matt was very generous to allow us to try and experiment and he'd pull things back and he'd say, oh, that's really great, et cetera. But when I got the first script and it was written by John V, who was, you know, sort of new to all this and was called Bart the Genius, I just thought this was the funniest thing ever written for animation. And I just said, look, I don't know. People would ask me and said, what do you think? I said, well, I got to tell you this. If you loved Rocky and Bullwinkle show, you're going to love this. And my figure is that I know the critics slam dunk. They're going to love this stuff. And I had complete confidence that we would make it, you know, you'd make it, uh, We'd make it happen. We'd make the, the animation happen. I wasn't worried about that. I just was like, "Gosh, it's going to be so great. And I just said, I don't know. I think Fox will give it at least two seasons. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my prediction. So well, I, I was right about that.
0: <laughs> well, you know, another thing, another thing that I like to ask people, I feel like I'm asking everybody this, but again, it's 2020. It's such a disaster. Um, what has it been like for you to adjust to working from home digitally? I know that you said you've been doing it for a while on this other project.
1: So um, what has it been like for you? It was pretty easy adjustment, adjustment rather because, you know, we had, um, I thought I would have to go to uh, our, our, when we were working on uh, extinct, we were doing it um, uh, with a studio, great studio in Canada in Montreal called Cinecite. Uh, and um I unfortunately didn't get a chance to go to Montreal because I didn't need to, <laughs> and I have relatives there, so it would have been nice. Ah. It's a very pretty city, uh, but um, but it was really really interesting. I said, "Wow, you can literally kind of animate from here." And um, so that when the when the when the boom came down in March, we literally just somehow we kind of sensed it was coming. And you know, to his great credit, Tom Klein, who's head of the animation, what was formerly Film Roman is now Fox TV Animation, but he's a head, head honcho on that. He was able to get everything worked out and wrangled so everybody had you know a Cintiq set up at home. Most people had Cintiqs. So those who didn't, they took their material from their office uh, and get set up so everybody had a station at home. We've been able to continue the show uh, without a problem. I mean, some, there's some good aspects of it. I don't have a commute anymore, which is nice. We're finding certain things are more efficient. So we suspect that even after we get to a more normal situation, this will continue simply because it's very efficient. And, uh, I couldn't imagine maybe some people who have, you know, lived far away from the studio may want to continue working at home. Some people won't, but we actually have about or five people who are out of state you know from california who work on the show but no it's been a very interesting transition and you know the show is there's always work to be done on the show so uh and you know then there's special projects like yesterday i did that that marge uh, simpson special project i was that, gonna ask yeah oh yeah that was literally uh we had a table read and after the table read or before the table read even and Julie was there, and she said, "And, he, and Jim says, you know, Julie, can you stick around afterwards? Because we want to write something and try to get it together today." And uh, you know, Matt Selman and I was thinking, well, we must have—I know we have animation and we can probably repurpose. And Selman said, "We had that whole thing of Marge standing out in front of the audience." It's all oh, right in front of your your uh, Thanksgiving of par. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I immediately got in touch with Tom and said, "You want to jump onto the Zoom meeting and listen in?" And uh, let's get this out right away. So as soon as that meeting was over, they sent it to me because I had. A, I said I think I know how to edit this, and I edited it with the motion. And I knew we have we have uh, you know we have people working in harmony, uh, scene planners, and they could refigure out the mouth movements. You know they could paste it and you know, cut and paste and so forth. So let's do that, and we'll add some eye blinks to some key areas or some close. What I call. Uh, emotion eye blinks is where you close the eyes and hold them closed and then open them like on for emphasis, you know, and that adds, that gets, that can get you quite a bit. That was a trick we did on the Tracy Almond show because we had (laughs) no money and we had a lot of (laughs) people talking (laughs) like this and a lot of the eyes closing coming up like that for expression, for, you know, for for emphasis. Right. Um, And yeah, we got it done on the day and it came out, you know, this morning.
0: Yeah, I will uh I will probably never get to meet Julie Kavner. I know she doesn't do a lot of uh I doubt I could ever get her on a podcast, but I need someone, whether it be you or Yardley or anyone, to just pass on to her how much I adore her. I'm oh, such a
1: I certainly will. Yeah, she is literally the best and she has incredible acting and comedic acting skills, you know. And it's just instinctually she just says, you know, all right, let me let me try this one, you know, and she's just yeah. Does these things, these nuances, and so funny and just well-taught. It's just great. So I,
0: is- I obviously, you know, I, I love all of the cast and, oh, yeah. and everyone is special, but um, I, think, I think because Julie stays out of the public eye so much, I just, I just need someone to <laughs> tell her, man. So just let her know Warren is a huge fan of hers.
1: <laughs> Absolutely we will do so, and uh, I know she'll appreciate it. She very much appreciates that. She's a very uh, friendly and very generous person. Uh, so
0: I want to, I want to talk about season one a bit. Um, everyone, well, I think everyone knows that the Christmas special, uh, was the first episode, but it wasn't intended to be. Um, and what I want, what I want to know is what are your memories of some enchanted evening and what was it like to be tasked with essentially redirecting the episode?
1: Well, all I can say is that I was at the beginning, you know, I wasn't supervising director until the following season nominally. And then you know, for all desperate in the third season, you know, absolutely. Yeah. Um So I was just sort of focusing, well, I was working on the s- second episode, which was Bart the Genius. Uh The first episode was being done uh by this other guy. And I was like, <laughs> I, would, I wouldn't go that way about it myself, but, you know, I don't think it's for me to say per se, because I'm not like, you know, and I was not you know as gregarious as I appear now, <laughs> but uh but I was like, "Oh no, I don't know and um, and even Sam Simon was asking me about it, and I said, oh, not no, I'm doing my show, but the thing that was really interesting it's like it's it's almost like remember in Citizen Kane the two stage cans that look at each other and hold their nose, you know yeah. When Susan Alexander is singing, it's kind of like the camera operator, you know, the guy who's <laughs> shooting the animatics. He's going like, and he's there. And of course, he's back where you're like smoking your cigarette in the camera room. <laughs> David, your show is fine. It is so much more interesting, and in the compositions and the camera work is so much more inventive. Because I was starting to worry about it. I and mean, he's just like, it's really good. And I said, yeah. okay, good. um And so, but I, you know, I was really worried about the show. And yeah, and I came back and it just was not, it wasn't good. It was a kind of a famous disaster. So I'm not saying anything new, but I do remember that. But I can tell you that they did say it's now up to David's show. And if David's show doesn't come out, we're just going to pull the plug out. Just going to forget the whole enterprise. Literally the entire. Fate of the show depended on my show coming back. Mark the is coming back good, and I was like, oh. I was like "What am I?" I go to bed and I'd be lying in bed going like, "And this okay, Act One, yeah, I think that's gonna be good. That's gonna be good. That was laid out well. Greg Vanza did a nice job on that, and Bonnie did a nice job." It's like going through everything in my head. Like I just, I'm hoping it's not going to be bad, you know. And then. I do remember they all came to the studio. First time they all came to uh, Kalaski Chupo Studio when it was back on um, Melrose and Seward, just uh, off the corner there. They all piled in in the small room that had a flatbed, you know, moviola. And they ran it. And I hadn't seen it yet. You know, it came in like the night before and I'd gone to bed or something like that. And I, So I was seeing it the first time with them. So I was sort of like this and all sat between and the first thing happens, and, you know, Maggie's putting up the blocks that basically say equals MC squared, and the Scrabble tile falls down, and she they pan up and see the family, and they're already laughing. you know. And then the whole Scrabble scene, you know, how can you make a word out of these lousy letters? It gets a big <laughs> laugh the way I staged it with a hand going down to, you know, there's all these things that I did, I guess. Um, and their Jim Brooks is turning me and slapping me on the back. I'm going like, okay. I'm like, <laughs> I just feel like a puddle at this point because I, it's just like the the worry was gone. And yeah, and that was sort of like, okay, everything's going to be good. And you know, then Wes's show came back. It was uh, Homer's Odyssey. And then they made the decision. Originally, this series was going to start in, um, um, I guess, around November, beginning of November. So the the eighth episode would have been the Christmas episode, which is episode number eight. And that was the third episode I had directed. I directed Bart the Genius, Bart the General, and then the Christmas episode. And then the Jacques the Bowler episode, Life in the Fast Lane. And then resurrecting uh, Some Enchanted Evening. So that was my first season. Uh But what happened was, is all the other shows got like an additional two weeks to the schedule, except the Christmas show, because that had to air as a Christmas special. And, uh oh, I got to say one, one thing. Um, it wasn't. It wasn't. There was first. There was a, a a bowling party for the uh, for the Christmas episode. Interestingly enough, when it aired, and there was another party. It might have been. I don't know if it was a great. I think it was a party at Fox or something like that. And they gave us these Letterman jackets. You know, the red mm-hmm. leather sleeves with the, this drawing in the back of the Simpsons, which I had done for the script, which is still being used. Uh, and you know, I remember Brad Bird and I was saying, "Oh, these are really cool." You know, this is great. Or maybe Brad showed him to me or something like that. And then I go back home to Maryland to visit my, my parents, my brother, and other friends, and we're in the shopping mall. This is 1989. This is after the episode aired, and people are stopping me and asking me, where can I buy that jacket, you know, because they had seen the Christmas special, and it made such an impression on people. I could have people talking behind my back about the series, you know, the, not the show, not the series. And I was like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, <what? laughs> uh, right. good, good heavens, Watson, a clue. So.
0: <laughs> yeah, I actually own one of those jackets. I bought it from Al who mm-hmm. used to be the marketing uh, president
1: for Fox. And I do right. own that jacket. Yeah. Um, the, collection, the collection is as extensive as yours, you know. You Got to have it. Have it. Hey, what can I say?
0: Um, so speaking, speaking of the Christmas special, uh, you shared a drawing a, ra- a while back that was sort of, uh, I guess, not an al- an alternate ending, but an alternate uh, frame, which was actually Homer choking Bart in the Santa. There it is. Something a little like this. Yeah, just like that, um, which is very similar to one of the first shirt designs. The say cheese.
1: Sure. Yes, and I think um, I think this is actually based on the the drawing I'd done for that, which was the first Homer strangling Bart drawing, right? Uh, and that was originally going to be they were going to do the the whole song, you know, why you little, and then he's going to lunge after Bart, and you have a flash frame, and this would be like the picture, you know, like you know, you know, sort of tilting, on of slight Dutch angle, and that would be the end of it. And for whatever reason, they decided not to do it. Maybe they thought it was a little too. Mean-spirited for Christmas, but um, eh. you know, that's yeah, that's maybe it was
0: really maybe they, maybe they thought you know with with it probably being some people's first impression of the show, maybe
1: they just uh, died. I think I think so, and I, and I, you know, and there's there's some there's some sense to that. You know, there's uh, I, I don't I don't uh, discredit uh, you know the, the caution in that regard because I am one I'm not one to second guess what James L. Brooks is thinking. He's pretty smart. True. He's a pretty smart guy.
0: Pretty smart guy. Um, <laughs> so uh, be, being one of the original three animators, like we talked about, you know, with Wes Archer and Bill Kopp, um, what do you think it is about the style of the characters uh, that is so special, lends itself to so much interesting stuff?
1: Well, you know, it comes back down to Matt's original design that, of course, we kind of, you know, with his blessing and his encouragement and his guidance, you know, develop further but the main thing about it is, particularly Lisa, Bart, and Maggie, is they don't have a hairline. They have iconically interesting shaped heads. <clears throat> and uh, with no hairline, which makes necessitates, well, you have to come up with a color that works as a hair color and a skin color. And Georgie Pelosi, who was doing the color styling, you know, and painting these the cells for the Tracy Ullman show, chose yellow. And there's something about that choice, which I think has made an enormous uh difference, you know, between Match Matt's approach to the design, which is really great and you know, wonderfully different and cartoony, you know, with these weird ideas of like no chins and bug eyes and over bites. <laughs> <clears throat> so that, that of course and that was a that was also a new sort of concept in terms of like, you know. It wasn't a house style. It wasn't a Disney style or a Hanna-Barbera style or Warner Brothers style. It was Matt's style. And that was not, and that, by the way, after that, that was, (laughs) that's all everybody wanted. We want Ren and Stippy and John Kay's weird style. We want Doug in that style. We want uh, Rugrats in this style. You know, it was the first thing that sort of was a direct influence of the popularity of The Simpsons with these Nick, these three Nick um, shows, or at least percolating around the same time. And right. that of course is how it's been ever since is all every show tries to hit its own unique sense of art direction. But that's True. how it was back then. And I but anyhow, I think there's something intrinsically charming about these very weird characters. You know, that you know, now when you think about them, they're fine, but when I remember we doing them, my friends are the weirdest looking characters, you know? <laughs> In fact, Mark Davis, who's like one of the great, of course, the great, great, nine old men animators, he told me, and he's, he was, I was happy, I'm very happy to say he was a friend of mine, and uh, well, a mentor of mine. He said, David, I love the animation, but I really, I can't take him from the neck up. Their, their faces are just too ugly for me. <laughs> said, no offense, it's my, this is my old guy design sensibility, but you know, good job, a great show. <laughs> The wow. best thing about it is when I when I first got to UCLA, we had a wonderful um, thing that uh, uh, our dear professor Dan McLaughlin had us do was to find an animation, you know, legend, and there were plenty back in you know 1979, and interview them. And I interviewed Ward Kimball, and uh, became friendly with Ward. And when The Simpsons came out, he actually sent me. It's not a fan letter, but just a great letter of congratulations of how much he loved The Simpsons, and that was like a big, you know, big deal. Getting a letter from him saying, you know, you know, bravo to what you did. <laughs> you know, wow! One of my, you know, absolute heroes.
0: Um, well, You know, I, I mentioned I mentioned Wes. Um, I told him earlier that I was speaking to you today, and he told me to let you know that we've always been out of our minds. <laughs>
1: Yes, he he's true. Right? It's true. We 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 have to keep reminding ourselves that we were always out of our minds. We always were a little out of our minds. Absolutely.
0: <laughs> I had a feeling you would like that. He told
1: me to, to pass. I it off. absolutely adore that. No, Wes is <laughs> just the greatest, and and by the way, inspired me immensely. I mean, his his contribution to the Simpsons is colossal, and his sensibility, his drawing style, he really. I really learned a lot from Wes. I got much better in drawing learning from him just by watching how he approaches. I mean, he's just a, just a genius draftsman and a genius, funny cartoonist. Yeah, no, <laughs> so Wes. A solid drawing. And he just sort of draws like it's in my brain. It comes out like this, almost like he's almost like a fax machine.
0: So sort of on that same point uh, you were known for giving, you know, certain scenes, uh, a special kind of life um what is an example of a scene or a type of scene that that you just
1: sort of know when you hear it that it'll be fun to draw there was something the first time that really hit me well I guess early early on even in in the um uh the first episode I did uh Bart the genius there's something about Homer at the door as Bart you know he's trying to knock at the door and get in there (laughs) that struck me, this is going to be a lot of fun, particularly was Dan's acting and the noises he was making. So I got inspired by that. But then, not long after that, um, I don't know, there's certain things. Certainly, like, the most obvious one is Homer saying, you're living in a world of make-believe. That whole thing, you know, Marge, you're my wife. I love you very much for living in a world of make-believe. <laughs> and there was something funny about the way Dan read that. First of all, something about the funny about the way George wrote it. And George told me later, he said, well, I don't know, we just... We're trying it. You know, you write it. But he said the way that Dan read it completely surprised him and charmed him. He thought that was hilarious because it just it didn't say anything. It just said, it's just written out, Marge, you're my wife, and I love you very much, but you're living in a world of make-believe, of flowers and bells and leprechauns and magic frogs and funny little hats. And that's what he had written out. And that meant Dan went, make-believe, flowers, magic frogs, funny it's just this whole sing-song. <laughs> High pitched voice. And it was hilarious. And so I could not help but be inspired to just go, Ooh. <laughs> just like go into it. And then right afterwards, it was a scene where he's going, dear Mr. Burns, and he's dictating the letter. And the same thing, the same other things, just the way you said, you know, I'm so glad you enjoyed my son's blood and your card was just great. It was so expressive. And I said, you can't have a talking hand here. You have to get into it with the body language. So I guess that was the first time I really kind of tried to emulate that. And that kind of led to other things. Even in the Raven sequence, you know, the fact that I was napping, so gently, really napping, you know, that kind of inspired me. But that really kind of made me really look hard about this. Yeah. And then, and then it was, it was one of these things that, you know, Rich Moore was, Doing this great episode, of course, the of uh, the, uh, the Flaming Mo episode, and again you had the scene of Homer going, oh, look at me! I'm making people a magical man from Happy Land." Same kind of idea, and Rich said, "Well, I think you better animate this." I said, "Okay," and Mark Kirkland the same thing with the uh, with the sugar thing, which is again one of these great things It just. <laughs> but even just the writing, the terrifying lows, the dizzying high, the creamy middles, <laughs> like. How can you not be inspired to do something special? You can't just you know fluff this off. And of course, when I read the script for um, Burn Cell's the Factory, and I come across the land of chocolate, and I'm just reading it, and I thought on my chair laughing because just reading it, I guess I could just see it in my head. I just it just killed me.
0: So I saw you know I saw on Twitter recently where you talked about how much you loved Homie the Clown, and I, I just I have to talk about this a little bit. Um, what are some things about working on that episode that you, that you really loved aside from,
1: you know, the entire family being drawn like Krusty? That was one of my favorite things. I mean, that was because I boarded, I think the first act, I didn't board the whole thing. I did board the first act pretty meticulously. And a lot of those layouts are exactly as they were in my board. Wow. But, you know, and I just, I don't know, there's something there's something hilarious about it. Maybe it was the fact, because you know, originally Matt had this notion that Homer would be crossing the clown, you know, but that, of course, it was unworkable. So right. it was nice to sort of revisit that, that that physical connection. I don't know. There was something about the script that just really tickled me. I just thought it it was funny, and it was it surprised me because Merkin later told me they said they thought ah the script isn't that funny. And I was like, really? I think it's hilarious. I mean, maybe just the way it struck me, the way I saw it in my head. I I don't know. So they certainly were happy with the way the show came out. I guess a lot of people are. But um, (laughs) it's just a really funny Schwarzwelder script. (laughs) I see the look on their faces. I just know they're getting ready to jab me with something. (laughs) (laughs) I,
0: I, you know, I think it's one of the funniest episodes, and I've I've heard people put it in their top five, you know, several
1: times. So. Oh well, that's that, that makes me feel really great because I just I just love it. Um, actually, one of the things that really I was just, I can't, I just, I gotta get a good drawing of this. Was was Krusty lighting a cigar with a original, you know, uh, Superman number one? I just <laughs> thought that's I. I just imagine people going, no! It's like it's a cartoon. <laughs> I know, but still,
0: don't do it. <laughs> the, I- the idea of it's enough to make people sick. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, wh- I wonder what it is about that. Because, you know, I've, I've read that the table read didn't go over that well either. And I, I just, I can't understand why. I
1: mean, it's... Yeah, yeah and you know, I, I probably didn't make it to the table read. You know, I didn't go to all of them at that, at that point. There was so much going on. I don't know. I don't know what uh, what what the reaction was from the table read, but I, all I can say is I read the script and I just said this is a home run. And was the other thing I was so inspired that I and I normally don't, don't do this, but I, the opening scene where Krusty's going back and forth on the on the on the bike and they're getting smaller and smaller for the animatic, I put on the music from the opening of Dumbo. You know that great circus music, because I just thought you needed that rollicking music to sell it. I think they kind of. Got that. And of course I took the that um part from Dumbo for the when they're dancing around where they're mincing around like clowns. Yeah. Um uh, and which Alf did, you know, his his sort of off, great knockoff version of it. I don't know. I just I just thought it was great. There was something funny about almost saying, I I am holding still, I am squirming. <laughs> <laughs>
0: So good. That's so good. Um, You're often credited as creating a lot of the rules for The Simpsons. What do you think that means?
1: Well, I don't know if it's rules per se. I just found that because we were working with characters, that the construction was something of possibly a mystery because they were not the usual characters to construct. But at the same time, I wanted to make sure that artists came in and they knew they were dimensional. I came up with a, sort of a set of approaches of how to, you know, draw the characters and balance them out. Here's like, here's the incorrect ways of doing, because I would see a lot of things that were, people were doing incorrectly. And, you know, I realized, wow, it's one of these things. You look at the drawing and you think, oh, it's drawn this way. It's like, well, it's interesting. You know, that's your perception. And they're these are all talented artists, many of them. They're really, really great artists. And it's like, oh. So I just needed to come up with some set of like, here's the wrong way of doing it, here's the right way of doing it, you know. And I just kind of took it upon myself just to sort of help the other artists. And I guess people use that as kind of a, a jumping off uh, point. You know, I look at them now and I'm just thinking, gee, I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> but I guess I I guess I helped things out. Wes certainly did even a better job in certain things as well. Yeah. And other people started taking the mantle up to that. You know, I, I think it was Nancy Cruz who did a really great job of like, here's how to draw burns properly. You know, Rich Moore was doing the uh, first uh, episode with, with fat Tony. He just sort of was had like, here's some quick construction rules. Yeah. Cause he's a really great, great artist and great designer. I mean, he's an incredibly great designer.
0: Obviously you've worked on so many things other than the Simpsons and, uh, one thing that I found super interesting, if you just sort of look back on some of the things you've worked on, um, is that you were an animator on a Tom Waits video. <laughs> what, yeah. what was that
1: like? Tom Waits for no one. Well, it's interesting. Uh, that was uh, done by uh, Bruce Lyon and John Lamb, who were famous for creating the first animation video system called the Lion Lamb Video Camera. There was no, uh, this is like before there was any digital anything, obviously. And it was one of these things that they just kind of said, why can't there be an animation video camera that takes a single frame? And they talked to, a, you know, a, you know, an engineer about it. He goes like, yeah, you could do it. No one's ever asked to do it. So they developed it and it became quite a thing. And they also kind of came up with this uh, digital video um, rotoscope system. So they had this idea. Uh, in, and by the way, this is before there was MTV, you know. So, so there was no music videos at the time, but people were kind of doing music videos all throughout UCLA when I was going there. You know, I went there started going there in 1977 and there are a lot of, by the way, you know, by Jonathan Dayton and Valerie uh, Ferris, they were students at UCLA and they went into doing commercials and videos right from, from their work at UCLA. Uh, So it was sort of up in the air, you know, it was, people were like doing these things. So they made this short, He's Tom waits for no one. And, uh, I was still a student at UCLA and they hired me as, as, an animator. I was really more of an assistant animator than an animator, but you know, there you go. <laughs> I, I never met Tom Waits. I mean, I met him briefly <laughs> once before that he remember anything about it, but yeah, that was,
0: <laughs> that's really cool. I, I watched yeah. it the other night cause I had never seen it. It was, it was very cool. Um, yeah, it's really kind of fun. It's very trippy. Yeah, it is. Uh, you know, on that same sort of, uh, note, you are super into music and, uh, you, you obviously have a bit of a tuba collection as I can see here. And, you know, what, what is your, what is your history
1: with music really? I, um, well, you know, I always loved it. I took piano lessons when I was a Very young kid, you know, and they just, you know, sometimes you start people too young and their interest is not as good as it should be. So I didn't stick with it at all. I think I stopped playing after two years of lessons. But I remembered how to read music. That did not leave me. And I got very interested in music, like, later on, like, when I was, like, you know, 11 or 13 or something like that. And I started reading scores, like, following along with music, reading scores, because I was so fascinated by... How are they getting those textural sounds? you know oh, it's the trombones and the cellos together oh, that's really interesting. or the bassoons and the French horns. Wow, that makes an interesting sound. and how about all this stuff here? you know <laughs> look at look at what the harp and the celeste are doing together uh, So I got really interested in orchestration and I, I I always liked the lower sounds, particularly the tuba. I just like the the sort of the textural sound of it, and I was also getting interested in. Preservation Hall Jazz Band, and I was fascinated by their work, and we saw them a few times. and And there was one point that um, uh, in in high school, I was taking. We had this great band director named Alfonso Salazar. We called him Dr. Fons, and uh, he was teaching just a class, a half-hour class in sort of basic music theory. And I went there, and basically, there was a tuba on a stand, kind of like the you can see there in the corner, the red tuba over there. I just sat there and clearly did not move for the entire time that I was in. I realized nobody's playing this horn. And I asked, uh, Dr. Fonz, can I borrow that tuba and take it over the summer and learn how to play it? And he looked at me and said, oh, would you? <laughs> he was so happy. I said, sure. So I did. And I did. And I learned how to play it. And I think I learned pretty fast. And I think one of the reasons when I, I had been, as a friend of mine pointed out later, he said, well, David, you've been studying music for years. You just hadn't played an instrument. <laughs> yeah, that's true because he said you knew all how to do the dynamics yeah i knew all the dynamic markings i knew what all that meant i had a sense of you know how to phrase something before i was playing along so you yeah. know wow and that led to me doing uh drawings about musicians and i did a caricature of the national symphony orchestra uh washington dc that led to me doing drawings for the la times it led to me doing drawings for alfred publishing and their piano library and so that sort of helped my career get started.
0: Well, you know, and I've also heard uh, people talk about how knowing knowing music and timing does really help as an animator as well.
1: So, no question about it. And you know, there's many, of course, the most famous uh, examples of that is you know Ward Kimball and uh, Frank Thomas. You know, Ward Kimball on the trombone, Frank Thomas on the piano, members of the band that Ward. More or less started by himself for the firehouse five plus two. Of course, you can't think of a better animator than Frank Thomas to animate Captain Hook playing the piano with a hook. So, um, so yeah, music is very the, the, so the the number of animators who are musicians is you know legion. I would say, and if not uh, if not they they'll play an, if they may not play an instrument, they certainly have a passion for music. So, um, it's it's hat in hand, like you say, timing, rhythm, the whole the whole deal.
0: That's, that's awesome. Yeah, that's really that's a cool thing that uh, some might not think about. But
1: there you go. Um, yeah. As you know, you have a musical score, right? And you, at any point, this is what the music is doing at any point. In the, you know, a great uh, Beethoven symphony or, you know, uh, uh, Richard Strauss tone poem. This is what's happening at this point in time. And I always thought back when we used exposure sheets, the exposure sheet was very similar. It's like any point in the animation. This is what's happening. These are the cell levels, and this is what's happening. The background's moving like this. So there's kind of not that you conduct <laughs> a, a film that way, but it was sort of like a a connection. But you know they would do that with it when the Warner's cartoons or all the short cartoons back then and Disney cartoons. They had bar sheets, and they would that would they would work out the timing for the composer. You know the animation was almost. Rhythmic, so the composer had you know, rhythmic blueprint to work with for the music. Wow, but you can see how all the music in those shorts from Disney to MGM to Warner Brothers, there's the music is just falling in line to the action. Um, and uh, that's because they would work with bar sheets.
0: Well, you know, staying on animation, uh, there, there's an interview from '91 that someone added uh, to YouTube where you explain how the show is animated. Do you know the video I'm talking about? Have you seen this? Yes,
1: yes, I look pretty okay. young now.
0: Yeah. So I want to know two things. One, do you still have that green shirt? And two, uh, how different is the process now than how you described it back then?
1: Well, well, funny enough, I do have the green shirt. I have (laughs) half of it because later I made a Halloween costume where half of it was a on this half, it was a evening, you know, it was dressed up. Dressed up on this side, it was dressed, you know, dressed down. That was my Halloween costume. I, I had a beard at the time. I shaved half of it off, you know, this whole sort of. What hairstyle was like? This. Anyhow, so I have half that shirt. Wow. Uh, it was a pretty electric shirt, wasn't it? Yeah, it's a good um, shirt. Uh, in some aspects, a lot of it is similar. Uh, a lot of it has changed. What's so interesting is that much hadn't changed until about 2002, mm. uh, because we hadn't changed our our approach to it. And I do remember joking around with Mark Kirkland uh, sometime before that that how our we're doing this essentially. It's almost like this weird 19th century art form, you know. <laughs> but it's so mechanical, you know, and it hadn't changed in since. They really kind of codified it in, in, the, in like 1915 or something like that, you know. And then suddenly everything changed like that, you know. Uh, they used to say, uh, I forgot who it was. I don't know if it was Ken Ralston or somebody in, the, in effects who said, you know, we thought the transition to digital would be a, a slow fade. We didn't realize it was going to be a hard cut. Uh, <laughs> and what happened was is all other shows were going digital in terms of digital ink and paint and a digital camera. And we were the last holdout till about 2002, 2001, something like that. And wow. that, even that was sort of a slow change, because the only thing that was different in the process was the finished work. So the camera work was done differently, you know, and the painting was now done digitally. But really, after the movie, one of the things I did in the movie, I, I sort of got them away from the idea of laying out the entire film and then throwing huge amounts of animation out the window, the <laughs> idea of doing story reels like I had learned on. Working at DreamWorks and Pixar, um, which has changed, you know, that that aspect changed completely. We used to lay out the entire film, you know, with like half finished animation, but really laid it out in the background and so forth. And they would draw tons of it. There was one, I remember it was a, I think it was a, uh, Mike uh, Anderson was, Mike, uh, yeah, Mike Anderson was telling me the story about, you know, fade in act three, redo entire act three. (laughs) So like, a stack of papers, just uh, start again. And uh, so we don't do that no more. <laughs> Certainly saves a lot, a lot of do-re-me. Right. But now we don't do any, but especially now, it worked out very well for us because we don't do anything on paper. We work on a digital, you know, Cintiq tablets and we're still drawing. There's a heavier component of computer stuff in terms of like cars and mechanical props and things like that. Uh, and sometimes we have a computer background because it calls for like you know a you know specific sort of point which which is more of a you know that's that's a great thing that's that saves time but you know we're still drawing and still you know like layers of animation and so forth and timing it out and so on uh that that aspect is still the same um we we basically what we do instead of we do what we call an animatic, but essentially it's a it's a sort of more refined storyboard. That we present to make sure the jokes are working, the timing's working, and so on. The compositions are are right, or they're in the ballpark, anyhow. And then after that, we do the finished, you know, layout animation before we send the work to overseas to Korea for the in between. But we do the thing too. It's wonderful. We still do a great deal of the animation here in town in terms of it's all keyed out. If you see our, if you see a uh, a layout reel. Uh, you'll say, oh well, it's all there, all the all the key action. And sometimes, like for a specific dance scene, you know, it's fairly well, it's fairly fairly elaborate. And you know, we're fortunate we have like five former great, you know, f- former great Disney animators working for us. They wanted they want to draw, so we have, you know, we have uh, Nick Raneri who did you know Lumiere in Sleeping Beauty, Kathy Stolinsky who was a Disney and DreamWorks, and she was—I'd met her years ago, and she said she was tired of doing CG. She wanted to draw again. Uh, Carolyn Krasnack, Jeff Johnston—we're very fortunate. We could have gotten these guys in the '90s, and now they're happy to work with us, and we're happy to have them. It's just—it's just terrific. Yeah, that, is so, that so, is so cool. Yeah, some aspects are the same, some aspects are different.
0: So, so basically, what I'm taking away: shirts not as wild, but the process not that different.
1: <laughs> well, I'm wearing a mundane shirt today. I uh, <laughs> But I mean, here, little better. hang on a second.
0: See what we got. There we go. There better. we go. There we go. That's that's, that's better. much much better. Much better. Much better. <laughs> so, um so so you've directed both Maggie shorts including the most recent one Playdate with Destiny, yes. which I always say density. I always confuse I always say uh, <laughs> it wrong. I always density. say density. Uh, did you feel, uh, you know, like you got to try some new things with those? What was it like doing those?
1: Well, it was, I, I actually, you know, the, the first one I really had a lot of fun with. And uh, the second one is, was was harder because I was working on the extinct film. So I, I had to leave uh, a lot of it uh, to the team um, to, like, figure some things out. I mean, I still, yeah, I had my hand in it and i you know, I was very intent on the boarding and so forth and trying to find solutions for things like that. Uh, I was happy to get, get writing credit on that one, too. Eric Koenig was a big help as, a, as a, my assistant director and a really great team of artists. I mean, that's the other thing. Uh, we had a great team of artists in the first short, but I think we it's, a, it's even a, a more a deep. We have a deeper bench now than we had <laughs> from even six years ago. Uh Many of the same people, just just more talent has come in in our through our doors. The second one was easier to do in that regard because of the, of we have a deeper talent pool, and the fact we didn't have the 3D aspect on it. Although Eric Kerlin, who did the 3D in the first one, he was he was a wizard. I mean, he can just do it in in Lily hours. You know, we get the material back from from Acom in in Korea, and he's like, uh, David, I have something to show you. And I'm like, really, that quickly? Wow. Wow. i really really enjoyed it and then also the, in the first one i was able to at least animate a couple of scenes in it so that was fun
0: yeah no i, I think they're really great I, I saw it in theaters right before the world shut down so I did get that was that. great i was able
1: to catch it a few times in theaters too and i was very happy to see it i was very happy to see it in front of a pixar film that sort of felt like oh i have some i felt like there was some like symmetry in that you know working at pixar and monsters inc and having a short in right. front of it. it. was like, wow, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Here I am working back at Disney again. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you know, and
0: onward also really good. I, I spoke with Al, uh, Al Jean about that for a moment as well. It was also very good.
1: Oh, very good film. A really, really surprisingly, uh, wonderfully touching at the end and very, very lovely ending. And just, just another one of those fun, really fun Pixar films. that comes from a place of someone's personal experience and, uh, uh, yeah just great yeah
0: really good so you know a a running theme of my interviews uh, one of many is um, you know obviously I'm a collector um, that's sort I of why I started
1: uh, I, I, I collect tubas and I collect hats
0: so wow. that you know that's, that's why I started uh, this account on Twitter and Instagram is just to sort of show off my stuff and what I've collected over the last <laughs> Dude, eight man. years and uh, you know what what is what are your memories of of the merchandise were you in tune with it
1: much in the early 90s or oh, this is funny In the first year they were trying to sort of get me engaged in the, in the merchandising and I like, they realized that he doesn't have time for that so you know uh it was really wild i mean the first year there was crazy there was actually a temp pop up simpsons store in Westwood uh in Westwood village outside of UCLA uh and it was it was really nuts in the first year. I just remember that it was like everywhere. And the first s- s- bunch of years, there was like this nonstop Simpsons. But I guess it continues. I don't know. Yeah. I, I I don't. I can't keep up with it. I guess we're still making more Simpson merchandising.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was just a line of shoes that came out with Vans. Oh, that's right, Um, of course.
1: Yes, yes, yes. um, Kid
0: Robots still making a lot of stuff. I mean, there's a lot of good stuff coming out. It's not quite as saturated um, as it was in the 90s. I really
1: love the Kid Robot stuff. It's interesting to see which ones they get the most inspired from. I always have a dream of them. It would be great if they would do the Flaming Tuba guys, a Kid Robot maquette. I don't think I'll (laughs) see that, though. <laughs> uh, maybe- F- fingers crossed David. um
0: if they so, do use the, the, the obscure weird <laughs> character line hey they should i mean they you know they did make a lot of the guys from Moe's bar that's pretty obscure
1: so well that's true that's that's pretty great i um, I, do, I do love those this is just great
0: they're really good um I, I know that you know the Simpsons gave some pretty cool staff gifts early on um in fact, Wes actually gave me. Uh, his bowling shirt and I don't know if it's from the you know I think he said he remembered it being a season one or season two premiere party bowling party type it thing was season one in fact uh, do you want to wait a second
1: I'll- I do yeah, give yeah. Me just I uh, uh, probably can find it right here
0: <laughs> yeah I I love that shirt and and Wes you know Wes was nice enough to send
1: it to me it's fantastic uh, yeah. I occasionally wear it, but not that often because it's it's sort of a fabric fatigue, you know. And the, <laughs> yeah, the paint it's is very very, soft. very delicate. If I wear it, I get it dry cleaned because it's the mm-hmm. only way. I can think of it.
0: Yeah, I mean the you know the I I mentioned Alavadia. Uh when I bought his jacket. I also bought some uh, sort of pre production samples of some shirts and stuff that oh, never wow. got made. And um, yeah, so I and I have the. The patches are not actually on the jacket because he never sewed them on after Bart. So I just have the patches in pristine condition, and I love. Yeah, those. I have some patches hanging around. I have some
1: later coats that have more patches on them, but I don't have like the complete collection. Yeah, but uh, I kind of like the just the original. Tell you what, I want you—I want you to see a shirt. I'll be right back. Oh yeah, totally. This is a shirt that I was thinking of wearing, but. Uh oh man <laughs> yeah they're all the poses i did for homer go crazy from the halloween episode oh so good what what, what, is, what is that from i've never seen it it's it's a, it was it's a has matt's signature on it, it says you know fox so you know wow. they, they made it same with wow. this wow it's the same you can sort of see it's the same yeah place. that's so good <laughs> that's so good so i guess somebody liked that scene i was very happy because you know, no it's a great one the, scene one of the scenes that i did and it's like wow that's that's kind of cool well you know david
0: honestly you know you're you're a true legend and uh it's been oh, amazing to to talk to you and um you know I, i'm just such a big fan of yours and obviously i could talk to you for hours and hours but i don't <laughs> i don't want to keep you um before we go is there anything you want to plug anything you want to talk about that you got coming up or just anything you want to say
1: no all i can say is we we have we have a very good season of the simpsons coming up and uh i i tell you, it's just some really very funny episodes there's a there's a chalmers and skinner episode coming up so it's it's really 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 funny um I, I, to me, it's, it's, people say, you know, people, oh, Simpsons has been funny in 20 years. It's like, nuts to you. It's still hilarious. And, and this episode, if you, if you see this episode, I defy you not to laugh at it. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I'm also, I'm happy to say I, I'm continuing working on, uh, Duncanville. And I, I really like Duncanville. This, the season is very funny. There's some great episodes and the characterizations get, get even more richer, you know, so. So that, and hopefully you guys will see extinct sometime. You know, David, again, I, I can't wait for
0: season 32. I couldn't agree more that the show is still very funny. I've, I've long said that I, you know, I keep a list on me of great episodes um, to just, you know, slam on people whenever
1: they, they try to
0: say that. And they try and to diss it. Do you, do yeah, you throw it down exactly. on them and they
1: go like, well, maybe I'm wrong about this.
0: <laughs> uh, well, not as often as you would think, but sometimes I do uh, bring people to the light. So, um Listen. I'm I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna keep trying to do that, and uh, you know I I hopefully you know we can do this again sometime, and it was a sure. blast. I had a great time. I hope uh, I hope it didn't go on and on and on. No, no, I okay. can listen to you talk forever, David. And That's um, I'll, You know I'll I'll, uh, I'll keep you posted on when this is ready to go, and uh, I'll definitely see you very soon. Okay, Warren, real pleasure. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome, David. Thank you so much, man. I'll see you Thanks soon, for everybody listening. If you enjoyed this podcast check out the official Instagram at Simpsons is greater than or follow me on Twitter at Simpsons is great. If you're curious about me or my Simpsons collection, just search for of Darkness on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks again for checking this out. I'll see you next week.